Where we are is Daniel 11. I was sort of debating whether to try and crunch through 11 and get to 12, and now you guys have answered my question. I'm not going to. We finished 10 last time, so we're on 11, and as I said last time, chapter 11 is what I refer to as the soap opera. It has to do with the back and forth of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, Ptolemies being in Egypt, the Seleucids being in Syria, with Israel, of course, in the middle. I've got on the board behind me the list of Persian kings, and the first four verses of Daniel 11 talks about this. So let's go through those and we'll show where we are. Let's back up and pick it up at 10:18 because this is all a continuing conversation. Daniel 10:18. And one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to strengthen him. So this is a continuation in conversation of 10. Although he is not explicitly named, we're assuming that this is Gabriel who is speaking because it has been in the past. And he refers to Michael as somebody else, so it's not Michael speaking. The one who has been speaking in the past has been Gabriel. So I'm assuming it's the same messenger. So now verse two. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he will stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So in back of me now, you'll see the one who is stirring up against the kingdom of Greece is Xerxes, who is also listed as Ahasuerus, who is probably the Persian king at the time of Esther. So you have three more kings, Sambysus, Smerdis, and Darius, and then the fourth is going to be Xerxes. So this is in the time of Cyrus, or Darius the Mede. Doing verse two again now that I've explained what's going on. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. So the fourth then is Xerxes up here. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. This is obviously talking about Alexander the Great. So Xerxes goes against Greece and he gets all the way to Greece is finally defeated and sent packing and then Alexander the Great rises up and he and his army go east and we talked about that in some detail previously so I'm not going to go through that again and as you know Alexander 
his kingdom lasted just a very few years. He died as a young man. He did apparently leave an heir, but I don't remember whether he was killed or, or what, but he never inherited. And so Alexander's kingdom was broken up among his four principal generals. As you see here on the screen, the mustard yellow area is the area that belongs to the Seleucids. Seleucus is one of his generals. The blue area that isn't water, which is to say Egypt and the coast of Turkey, that would have been under Ptolemy. And then you had Macedonia, and this is under Cassandra, and this sort of an orange mustard as opposed to a yellow mustard is under Lysimachus. Cassandra and Lysimachus are of no particular interest to the Bible. The only two that are of any interest to the Bible are Seleucus and Ptolemy, because Seleucus is north of Israel and Ptolemy is south of Israel, and the two of them are going to contend over the next several decades, maybe a century, and they're going to trade back and forth and fight back and forth, and Israel's sort of going to be the place that they fight over, not as in they are fighting over possession of Israel is just that's the route that they go through in order to fight each other. So from the Bible's point of view, those are the ones that they're interested in. Now as we go forward in Daniel, Seleucus or the Seleucids are the kings of the north, and Ptolemy and his descendants are the kings of the south, north of Israel and south of Israel. So I have now got up on the screen what verses of Daniel 11 refer to which of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And I'm going to leave that up. So what I'm now going to do is I'm going to read Daniel 11, starting in verse 5. And what I'm going to do is where it says King of the South, it'll say King of the South, and then in parentheses I will say who that is at that time, at that place in history. I have this in a PDF file. So if anybody wants the PDF file, simply send me an email and I will be happy to shoot you the PDF file so that you have it, as opposed to trying to look back and forth between this and the Bible. I find it's much easier just to put them in there, and in my case in uh, bold letters and parentheses, so that I can tell who the players are. Off we go. So verse 5. Then the king of the south, who is Ptolemy I, Soter, and he was from 303 to 285 BC. So the king of the south will be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule. The prince who is stronger is going to be Seleucus I. Seleucus I, nicknamed Nicanor, he's from 311 to 281. So notice that Ptolemy is 303 to 285, Seleucus I is 311 to 281, so they overlap. So now again, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule. That's Seleucus. And his authority shall be great authority. After some years, they, and they in this case are Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, and Antiochus II, Theos, after some years they shall make an alliance. So Ptolemy II and Antiochus II will make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, her name is Bernice, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So what's going to happen is that Ptolemy II and Antiochus II, or Antiochus, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, I kind of like Antiochus, I just think it sounds cool. 
So Ptolemy II and Antiochus II are going to make an alliance, and to seal that alliance, Ptolemy is going to send his daughter, Bernice, to marry Antiochus II. Problem is, Antiochus II is already married. Let me read on, and then I'll come back and explain what happened here. So the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in these times. Okay, so what happens here is, Bernice, who is the daughter of Ptolemy II, and the sister of Ptolemy III, she's going to be given in marriage to Antiochus II. Laodice is going to be divorced. This makes her seriously grumpy. And what is going to happen is, Antiochus II, when he divorces Laodice so that he can marry Bernice, is going to settle a whole bunch of territory on her. In fact, the city of Laodicea is named after her. That's where we get the name of the city of Laodicea. It was given to her as a gift by her husband. Now, she is, as I say, a, a biblical power player in much the same spirit of Bathsheba. So what she does is she arranges to have Bernice and her son murdered. So when Antiochus and Antiochus II and Bernice get married, they have a son. Laodice arranges through palace intrigue to have Bernice and her son murdered. Seleucus also dies. Not sure what the circumstances are there. But Laodice then takes her son, who is a minor at that point, and has him installed as king, and she is the queen mother regent. So you have people that support the king, people that support Laodice, and all sorts of palace intrigue, and the one that comes out on top is Laodice and her son. You see why I call this a soap opera? So now we're all the way down to verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. This is Ptolemy III, Wergentius, and I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, who is Seleucus II. Now, Ptolemy III is the brother of Bernice, the one that got murdered by Laodice. So when his sister gets murdered, he gets really grumpy, and he hats up an army and heads north. He, in fact, does take the capital city of the Seleucids. Now, notice that the one who married Bernice was Antiochus. The one here who is being conquered is Seleucus. Let's do seven again now that we know who the players are. And from a branch of her roots, Laodice's roots, in other words, her son, one shall arise in his place, who is Ptolemy III, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, who is Seleucus II. And he shall deal with him and shall prevail. So what happens is Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, moves forward and conquers the Seleucids. Then the latter, Seleucus II, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Seleucus II counterattacks, and he makes it all the way down to the south, but he doesn't get far enough and has to retreat. His sons, this is Seleucus III, 
and Antiochus III, who was Antiochus the Great. And Antiochus the Great is actually a competent military commander. So his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So they will go south and get as far as the fortress of Ptolemy, verse 11. Then the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, remember Ptolemy III is the brother of Bernice, he's the one that goes forward and now when Seleucus III and Antiochus III come south, they are coming against Ptolemy IV. Then the king of the south, who is Ptolemy IV, moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north, who is Antiochus III, the great. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So what you have now is a contest. Notice, by the way, that Seleucus III is dropped out. Remember, back in verse 10, his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, so now we're down to the king of the north, who is Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. So Ptolemy IV moved with great rage, goes north, Antiochus raises a great army and comes back down to the south. Verse 14, in these times many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So Israel rebels against Antiochus III. These are not the Maccabees yet. These will fail. This rebellion is going to fail. It isn't until the Maccabees that the rebellion succeeds. So in those times, many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw siege works and take a well-fortified city, perhaps Sidon, and the forces of the south shall not stand, for even his best troops for there shall be no strength to stand. So what's going to happen is Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, is going to put down the Israelite rebellion and is going to go down against Egypt, Ptolemy. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. So the forces of the south are going to be driven before the forces of the north. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement to perform them. He shall give him, him being Ptolemy V now, the daughter of women who is Cleopatra I, to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. All right, so what's going to happen is we're going to do another bride swap to make peace. This time, the king of the north is going to give the king of the south Cleopatra. We have a number of Cleopatras. You know, just like we have Ptolemies, we have Cleopatras also. So we have another 
marriage between the king of the north and the king of the south. However, Cleopatra, instead of being a fifth column within Egypt to the benefit of the Seleucids, in fact goes native and sides with the Egyptians. So it doesn't do him any good. Verse 17 again now. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him, him being Ptolemy V, the daughter of women, Cleopatra, to destroy the kingdom. So what his plan is, is I am going to give in marriage Cleopatra to Ptolemy with the intention that Cleopatra is going to be a fifth column and going to mess up the Egyptians, but she doesn't. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. In other words, this marriage which he is hoping is going to pacify the Egyptian king doesn't work. Verse 18. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander, and the commander here is Cornelius Scipio, who is a Roman. Scipios were Roman generals. Cornelius Scipio, I'm not sure which one he is. They had a Scipio Africanus who went across and conquered Libya. Anyway, back up now, now that we know who we're talking about. Verse 18 again. Afterwards he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. So what he does is he rebuffed by Egypt, so he now is going to capture the coastlands on the Mediterranean. But a commander, who is Cornelius Scipio, shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. By the way, did we get the Egyptian idols? One of the guys recaptures the Egyptian gods. Let me go back and do verse 7 and 8 and 9 again. So back in verse 7. This is Laodice. From a branch of her roots one shall arise, Ptolemy third. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with him and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. These Egyptian gods were taken by Cambyses, who is a Persian king, when he came down and attacked Egypt. Because you remember, the Seleucids have got the area of Syria all the way over to India, which includes the old Persian Empire. So the Seleucids have all of the loot that the Persians took from the Egyptians. So what happens is when Ptolemy comes up and enters the fortress of the kingdom of the north, who was Seleucus II, part of what he does is he scoops up all the loot that was in the old Persian Empire that the Persians had taken from the Egyptians, and he takes it back to Egypt where it belongs, quote unquote. Sorry, I missed that. I apologize. So what happens here is Seleucus III doesn't take Egypt and instead turns his attention to the west where he starts taking up coastlands. But at this point, the Romans said, um, wait a minute, you guys are getting too powerful here. We don't want 
you taking any more lands in that direction because Rome is now in the process of beginning it to its expansion as well. So Rome regards the Mediterranean as a Roman lake. Antiochus is coming up to the edge of the Mediterranean and what happens is Scipio grabs Antiochus on the beach, literally, draws a circle around him and says, you're not going to leave this circle unless you agree to back off. So at that point, Antiochus the Great doesn't want to tangle with Rome. So he's humiliated. And what he does is backs away from what he was doing. He has not conquered Egypt. Rome has rebuffed him as he's trying to expand westward. So he's grumpy. And one of the things that happens is the Romans put him under tribute and they take a bunch of hostages. Remember the deal is back then, when one people puts another one under tribute, they will very often take nobility as hostage. That's how Daniel winds up in Babylon, because he was taken as a hostage. One of the hostages that gets taken is Antiochus's son, who is going to be Antiochus Epiphanes. So he gets taken as a hostage to Rome. He grows up in Rome. And then, with a little bit of palace intrigue, he will come back and take over the Seleucid Empire. That's when we get to the Maccabees. Let's pick it up at 18 again. So afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander, who is Cornelius Scipio, a Roman, shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So what that says is he will get humiliated by Rome. will, in fact, wind up dying. Verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one, Seleucus IV, who is Philophiter, who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. He is poisoned by Heliodorus. So Seleucus IV sends an extractor of tribute, somebody who is going down to levy taxes, and he doesn't last very long because he's poisoned by Heliodorus. 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. That's Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And what's going to happen is he's going to bribe his way into the kingship. Because remember, he grew up in Rome as a hostage. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant, who is the high priest Onias III. And from the time that alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come to the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. This is now the time of the Maccabees. And what happens there is you've got all sorts of intrigue where you've got Hellenistic Jews who are cooperating with Antiochus. And so you have flattery, you have spreading a little bit of walking around money, you know, all of the stuff that people do to curry favor. 
So you've got Hellenistic Jews that are on the side of the Seleucids, and you will have non-Hellenistic Jews under the Maccabees who will rise up and throw them out. This all happens under Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. First, 25. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south, who is Ptolemy VI. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet at the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, crackheads, they sit down, they make a treaty, but neither one of them is sincere. Why does that surprise anybody? So 29, at the time appointed, ye shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Kittim is Rome. He tries to go south, but Rome stops him. Hymn is a different hymn now. The previous hymn was Antiochus III, this is now Antiochus IV. And he also gets humiliated by Rome. So for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. This is the setup for the Maccabean Rebellion. 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, who are Hellenistic Jews. But people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Those are the Maccabees. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, from 36 on, it isn't really clear who we're talking about. We may be talking about the Antichrist in the time of the future, or we may be talking about the events of the time of the Maccabees. What some believe is it's one of those things where we have a dual fulfillment, partial fulfillment at the time of the Maccabees, and a fulfillment again at the time of the end. What I propose to do is stop here. Then we'll pick it up at 36, and then we're going to be cross-referencing Revelation. We're going to be cross-referencing with Matthew 24, and a bunch of stuff. And I think that with going through to the end of chapter 12 will make more sense as a block than starting this which is ambiguous and then having to come back and pick it up next time. And to sort of wrap up, of course modern scholars are of the opinion that this was written in 
the 160 BC range, which is after the events of the Maccabees. From our perspective, the only reason it's there is because Yeshua has declared that Daniel's a prophet. So from Yeshua's perspective and from our perspective who believe what Yeshua says, this is then a prophecy that matches history, which is future by a couple of hundred years from where Daniel is when he receives the prophecy. So all of this stuff in there, other than setting up the Maccabees, from our perspective is simply an example of prophecy that gets fulfilled. That's useful and interesting, but now starting in 36, toward the end of the book of Daniel, we start getting into stuff that is yet future to us. Everything we have done up to now is past tense to us because it happened during the period of the 4th century BC to the the 2nd century BC. So they cover a period of a couple of hundred years. But all that is passed to us. So it's of historical interest, especially if you are interested in that kind of history. I suppose if you're a Hollywood screenwriter, you could generate a whole bunch of movies out of this without any problem at all. But the stuff that is interesting to us from a prophetic perspective will be 36 through the end of the book of Daniel, which is what we'll take next time. And as I say, if anybody wants, I have a PDF where I've got the whole chapter written out with the names interspersed in parentheses and bold, which is what I was reading from tonight. Anybody wants that, send me an email and I will send it back to you. Happy to do that. Let us shine.